Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the teaching pastors here uh, at Front Range. And I, I just got to say, I love Johnny, but he doesn't know what he's talking about with heat. We, Sherry and I, this past week, were at a family reunion in Charleston, South Carolina. They know how to do hot. Last Sunday after church, I had lunch with my, uh, with my or actually on Wednesday, I had lunch with my younger brother in downtown Charleston, and the heat index was 109. If you don't know what that is, that's, at 110, you die automatically, like there's no choice. <laughs> that's hot. I am so glad to be here. If you are new to Front Range, great choice coming out today. Here's what we do. We, uh, we, we focus on three things every single weekend at Front Range. We focus on helping you discover your purpose in life. Why are you here on earth? We uh, focus on helping you build community. How do you connect with other people? And then finally, we focus on helping you grow in your faith. How can you learn and know more about Jesus? And that's, that's what we do. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying this summer. Have any of you had some summer vacation, summer fun? Anybody had some... I tell you what, we, we haven't gotten on our, vac- our official vacation yet. We're going to go for our, in, uh, oh gosh, about three or four weeks, four weeks from now will be our 40th wedding anniversary, which is crazy, right? Right? Because I married Sherry when she was four, so that's kind of, <laughs> no, we're going to celebrate that, but we have been having a lot of fun this summer watching our kids, our grandkids play sports. One of our favorites is little Mason. He's five years old. He plays t-ball. Any of you ever experienced five-year-old t-ball? Anybody? It's cool, isn't it? It has nothing to do with baseball, nothing to do with sports, but it's so much fun to watch. Like a couple of weeks ago, we were watching, and a little guy stole second base. And it's not what you're thinking. Like he literally stole second base. Like he picked it up, and he took it to the dugout. Like he loved it. Another little girl, she got it. This is what I love about t-ball. She got a hit, good hit, into the outfield. She runs to first base. She sees the other team is all running into the outfield to get the ball. So she ran out there with them to help. Like, that is awesome. Like, in t-ball, like, the, the point of t-ball, if you know five-year-old t-ball, everybody gets to bat, everybody gets to hit, and at the end of the inning, everybody gets to come home. And the whole point of the whole thing, if you watch the five-year-olds, is to be with your friends. Like, that is a fun sport. So we've been enjoying watching that, watching our grandkids, uh, our, our grandkids, our granddaughters swim, and just been, been a fun summer for us. But here at Front Range, it's been cool. We have been in a series this summer um, called This is the Kingdom, and we're studying Jesus' greatest sermon he ever preached. In fact, this is undisputably the greatest sermon, greatest speech of all times. And he gives so much just stuff about how to live life and how life really works. And this week we're going to finish up a section of that sermon that is commonly called the Beatitudes. But before we dive into that, would you guys pray with me this morning? Father, we just thank you. We thank you for, for your sermon, for your, for your instruction, Jesus. And Lord, you, you taught us about how life really works. And Lord, I pray today that we'll just uh, continue to learn from your word. And you know, if you're listening today and you're, you're here, maybe you want to pray this prayer with me. Father, I'm, I'm here. I'm listening. My ears are open. Speak to me. Lord, that's our prayer today. Just speak clearly to our hearts. And we ask it in your name. Amen. January 26, 2020, a young man named Erezabayan uh, took off on a, on a uh, just a normal commuter flight out of L.A. He was the pilot. Uh, he flew west of L.A. over the hills there and flew into a cloud bank. When he flew into the cloud bank, he radioed back to the control tower, and he said, I'm going to ascend a few thousand feet to see if I can get above these clouds. 
And that's, the, that's what he thought he did. But he, instead of ascending, began to descend and list to the left. And within just a very few moments of calling the control tower, the helicopter he was flying crashed into the mountains. It killed all 13 people aboard, including Kobe Bryant and his daughter. And that is something that pilots are familiar with. It's called spatial disorientation. It's this idea of when you don't have a clear horizon, when you can't see what is out ahead of you, you can lose track of what is up, what is down, what is left, and what is right. And if you do, it can be deadly. And in life, many of us have experienced spatial disorientation, usually with less serious consequences. Maybe you've experienced a, kind of an easy one. Maybe you've been driving along and you thought you were going the right direction and then it turns out you were actually going in the exact opposite direction. And you, oh man, we have lost so much time. We got to turn around and go back. Or, or maybe you borrowed a friend's boat one time and you thought you were putting gas in the gas tank, but you were actually putting gas in the hull of the boat. Just me? Okay. I'm not going to tell you any more about that story. But it's that feeling of thinking you're doing the right thing, but you realize you're doing the exact wrong thing. You're doing exactly the opposite. And in serious cases, it can lead to you to crash and burn. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is addressing in this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's explaining what is really up and what is really down because he's saying in God's kingdom, the world is exactly opposite of what you think it is. And in fact, he opens this sermon with what we call the Beatitudes. It's eight statements that in most translations, it says the word blessed. Blessed are these people. The more accurate translation or literal translation is the word happy. Jesus says these people are happy. These are not the new Ten Commandments. Like, Jesus didn't say, oh, here's eight things to do. Figure out a way to mourn. Figure out a way to be poor in spirit. No, he's saying, in God's kingdom, in the way the world really works, when up is really up and down is really down, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who, are, who mourn, those who are weak, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. It's all counterintuitive. When you look at that list, happiness is not what comes to mind immediately. And that's why Jesus is saying, hey, hey, listen up, guys. This is how the world actually works. Not what you think, but what is real in God's kingdom. And we're going to finish this, uh, this section called the Beatitudes with the last two statements, the last two blessed statements or happy statements. And we're going to talk about happy are the peacemakers and happy are the persecuted and they don't seem to go together, but you'll, I think you'll see at the end, they actually do, uh, do go together. They're kind of hand in hand. But let's start where, first where Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they will, will be called the children of God. See, this isn't popular in our culture. This idea of being a peacemaker is not a popular thing. Well, our culture would say, happy are the people who stand up for themselves. Happy are the people who defend their own territory. Happy are the people who point out when other people are wrong. And that's how our society functions. And I think the great theologian, Dr. Phil, would say, how's that working out for you? Like, in your own life, if so, when somebody confronts you and says, you know what, your opinion's wrong, how do you respond to that? When, when someone is super defensive and defending their territory and saying, this is mine, 
How does that work? Does that, does that build community? Or when you do it to other people, when, when you get on Facebook and you type into the comments why everything they said at the top was wrong, do they ever type back and go, oh, thank you so much, I have changed my mind completely, and now I do like cats. Like that, that doesn't happen. But Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers. Now, it's important, I want to make a quick dis distinction before we dive into this peacemaker. Jesus isn't saying happy are the peacekeepers. That's a different thing. A peacekeeper is someone who wants to keep the peace at all costs, no matter what. My mom was an amazing woman, but she was very much a peacekeeper. If we were having dinner and one of us would bring up a topic that might, she thought, lead to some controversy or some friction, my mom would say this phrase. She would say, can't we talk about something pleasant, okay? Her motto in life is, can't we all just get along? That's a peacekeeper. Jesus is talking about a peacemaker. I came across this definition of a peacemaker, and I, I love this. It says, a peacemaker is one who is actively trying to reconcile people to God, and to one another. Notice the word actively. A peacekeeper is passive. A, peace, a peacemaker is active. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to reconcile people to God and to each other. And that's what Jesus said. Happy are you when you are a peacemaker. What is a peacemaker? How can I be a peacemaker? We're going to move from Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to come over to a letter called Romans that a guy named Paul wrote to a, to a church that was established in the city of Rome. And we know about Rome. You studied it in history. You know that in the first century, the city of Rome was the center of the Western universe. In fact, there's a phrase that says, all, all roads lead to Rome. And the reason for that phrase is at that time, all roads literally led to Rome. The Romans built the roads, and they all led to Rome. And because of that, people came to Rome and moved to Rome from all over the world. And so it was just this melting pot of cultures and religions and backgrounds and demographics. And into this, someone brought the gospel. And, 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 and this church in Rome was established not very many years, just a few years, after Jesus' death and resurrection. We don't know for sure who established it. Some traditions say that it was the Apostle Peter. The one thing that we do know is that it was not Paul who established it. In fact, when he writes this letter, he's never been to Rome. He's never met the Romans, but he knows that this, uh, this church is having some challenges because in this church, just like the city of Rome, there's all kinds of people. We know from reading his letter, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's circumcised, there's uncircumcised, there's vegetarians, there's meat eaters, there's Chiefs fans, there's Broncos fans. Like it's, it's crazy in this church. That was a joke at the end. Anyway, I'll just keep moving. They disagreed about almost everything. And that's one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter is to help them understand right and wrong and what this all should look like. But right in the middle of the letter, in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Paul writes this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. In the midst of this political and religious and, and, and all of these upheavals and disagreements and fights, G, uh, 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 Paul says, hey, Make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. In the rest of that chapter, in chapter 14, Paul gives us some very specific instructions on how we can be a peacemaker. In fact, he, he starts the chapter with this. He says in verse 1, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Paul is saying, accept each other. Accept 
without quarreling. Now, I, I want to put a caveat here because it can sound like what I'm saying that Paul is saying is don't worry about any sin, don't worry about behavior, don't worry about any of that. That's all good. No, if you read the first 13 chapters of this letter, Paul, those 13 chapters are the theology that we base everything we believe as a church and as Christ followers on begins in those thir first 13 chapters. Paul takes sin very seriously. And he doesn't shy away from saying, this is breaking what God has called us to. But then after laying out all this theology, he begins the 14th chapter by saying, there's other stuff. There's stuff that's not sin. It's disputable matters. You think this thing about it. You think that about it. Hey, let it go. Accept each other without quarreling. This, I, I'm just being transparent here. This goes against my nature. Like I told you, I was at a family reunion this past week. Everyone in my family is a preacher. And I'm I like almost all of us. There's a, it's a ridiculous amount of pastors. And we disagree about everything. And it was awesome. We just argued for three days, right? And it's just in my nature. If I think that I'm right and you're wrong, I just have this thing that wells up inside of me that says I've got to correct this. If someone's telling a story, and they're saying that this story took place in Kansas. And I think it took place in Nebraska. I just, it wells up inside of me. I have to stop. I have to interrupt you. And I have to say, no, it wasn't Kansas. It was Nebraska. And why am I doing that? God can't tell the difference. Like, he doesn't know the difference between Nebraska and Kansas. <laughs> and if you're from one of those two states, I just have to point out, you're from one of those two states. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's just something that's just, if I think I'm right, I feel I need to correct it. Here's a phrase that I'm learning that's helping. And it, I have to literally think to myself this phrase and say it out loud a lot. And the phrase is, you may be right. You may be right. In fact, it's such a powerful phrase. Let's try saying it together, okay? You may be right. We're going to try it again because some of you have never said those words in a sentence. <laughs> And so I know it's hard, it's hard the first time. It's like learning a new language, okay? So let's try it again together. You may be right. Now, this is the harder one. I want you to turn. If you're with somebody that you came with, turn to them right now and just say, you know, you may be right. Right? Can you feel the temperature in the room rising? Like there's guys going, I'm, what do you mean I may be right? Of course, I, and there's nothing on the table. Like you're not disagreeing about it, but you, it's hard to say because there's this thing. I've got to be right and I have to tell the other person. And Paul is saying, you know what? For the sake of peace, I'm going to let this one go. For the sake of peace, I'm just going to accept you. I love you. doesn't matter. It's disputable. It's cool. I'm going to accept you without quarreling. Next tip he gives for peacemakers is in verse 10 of Romans 14. And he says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. And this is a hard one to swallow. What Paul is saying is just refuse to judge. Accept without quarreling and refuse to judge. But if I don't judge, they're going to get away with stuff. If I don't point it out, if I don't show my disdain, they're going to think I think what they think is okay. I have to speak up. I have to judge them. They need to know it's wrong. And again, Paul isn't, Paul isn't telling us to affirm what we strongly believe to be wrong. Again, remember, Paul's pretty strong on theology. He wrote most of our theology. But he's saying, stop judging each, 
each other. Paul, he's also not here saying never bring up challenging topics, never talk about things that are in dispute. No, not at all. That's peacekeeping. Paul's talking about peacemaking. The key that Paul is talking about is the relationship is more important than the argument. And he's saying in relationship, we don't judge each other. What is the goal again? It's, it's reconciliation. It's not to be right. It's not to prove someone wrong. It's reconciliation. Paul says in this verse, God gets to judge. And here's the thing about God. Almost nothing gets past him. Like he's almost aware, he's aware of almost everything your neighbor does, says, thinks. Actually, he's aware of all of it. And God is saying, don't worry about it. You don't have to judge. I got that. Paul's saying, how about if we let God do his job and I stick to being a, being a peacemaker? And so Paul's saying, if we want to be a peacemaker, Jesus said, happy are the peacemakers. Paul says, if you want to be that, if you want to be happy as a peacemaker, accept without quarreling, refuse to judge. He goes on in verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Anytime Paul repeats something like that, he says, no, guys, I'm serious. We have to stop judging each other. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Paul is saying, focus on your own stuff. Focus on your own stuff. Instead of just constantly looking at, you're wrong, and I need to judge that, and, oh, I can't believe you even said that. That's way out of base, or I have to put up a, a comment on, its, on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. Paul's saying, you know, before you do that, like what's going on in your own life that could harm other people, that could make it a stumbling block for other people coming to know Jesus or, or building community. Jesus talked about this, but he put it in very stark terms. Jesus said, before I try to help you get that speck of sawdust out of your eye, I need to work on that two-by-four I have in my eye. And that's literally what Jesus said. A two-by-four in my own eye, what, what could that be? Well, for some, it, it, it might be anger. Like if you're an angry person and that anger comes out either in your tone or in your words or just in your demeanor, I think Paul would say, let's work on, work on your anger first. Before you worry about them, work on your anger. Or, or it, might be, it might be selfishness and, and that's what comes out. Or maybe it's, maybe it's arrogance or, or it's pride or, or, or maybe the way you use sarcasm and, and it's hurtful to other people. I think Paul would say, Work on that. Think that through. Get some people to help you kind of work through the pride, the arrogance, the sarcasm. And the reason I mention those, being transparent, those are mine. Those are my two-by-fours. Those are the things that when I start picking at you thinking, well, you know what? The things he says, the things she does, the way he acts, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, again, reminds me again and again and again. That's great, Jeff. Yeah, except how are you doing on anger? How are you doing on pride and sarcasm? So Paul says... Focus on your own stuff. And then one more tip from Paul. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Whatever you believe about these things, these disputable matters, keep between yourself and God. Paul is saying, keep your opinions to yourself. So he's saying, accept others without quarreling. Refuse to judge. Work on your own stuff. And you know what? Keep, your, keep, keep it to yourself. Keep your opinion to yourself. Now, what Paul is talking about in this chapter is a specific issue going on in the Roman church. And the issue is whether or not Christ followers can eat meat that's been offered to idols. And you had two camps. Over here, you have the Jewish people, the people who have grown up as faithful Jews all their life following the law. 
And the thought of eating meat that's been offered to an idol is reprehensible. They literally feel physically sick with the idea. And to think that those people call themselves Christians and come to my church and eat meat offered to idols, I cannot believe the rabbi or the pastor or the whoever he is doesn't kick them out and confront them. No way you should eat meat offered to idols. We all know that. And over here, you had this camp of, of Gentiles. Rome, they grew up in Rome. Everything they've ever eaten has first been offered to an idol. When they go to Safeway or to King Supers, the whole meat section has been offered to idols. And they're like, idol doesn't mean a thing. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. If they want to show my T-bone to an idol, that's fine with me. As long as it's good, I'll grill it up. That's lunch. Like They're just like, what is wrong with you people? And Paul is saying to them, whatever you think about it, whether you think it's terrible to eat meat offered to idols, or whether you think it's no big deal, what's your problem? Keep it to yourself. Don't worry about it. If you feel like you can't eat meat offered to idols, don't eat, don't eat meat. If you feel like it's no big deal, then eat it. Just leave each other alone about it. I saw... <laughs> I saw something like this play out at a church I used to be at. It, years, it actually, what I'm describing happened before I even got to this church, but it was legendary. They told me about it. So they had their own building, and they had a stage, and the stage, the backdrop to the stage was white. And they decided, with kind of some of the changes in the way they were doing music and some other things, to paint the back of the stage black. That's all they did. They changed it from white to black, and all heck broke loose. Camps formed, the pro-black paint camp, the pro-white camp, paint camp and they talked about each other and and one Sunday about two or three hundred people got up and walked out of the church and never came back because of the pigment of the back of the stage unbelievable right except do you guys remember way back in 2020 long time ago it was crazy people were quitting or joining churches based on whether that church did or did not enforce mask policies. Like, that was the thing. People were saying, relationship with other Christians, connection with what God is doing in my life, is less important than I can't go to a church where people don't agree with me about whether I should wear a piece of cloth on my face once in a while. I know I'm, I don't mean this in a point way. I'm pointing at me. I struggle with this same kind of stuff. And Paul's saying, you've got to be kidding me. He's saying, hey, we're peacemakers. Peacemakers let some stuff go. Peacemakers refuse to judge the motives that they don't understand. Peacemakers focus on the own stuff going on in their own life. And peacemakers, for most things, just keep their opinion to themselves. Imagine how different things would be if we actually kept our opinions to ourselves. Imagine how different our country would be if we kept a lot of our opinions to ourselves. Imagine how different your community would be. I'll tell you one thing that would happen. The Nextdoor app would cease to exist. Like there wouldn't be anything on there except lost cats. Like that would be it. Our own homes would be so much more peaceful. And again, I'm not talking about we never talk about tough stuff. Of course we do. But we accept each other. We don't judge each other. And on disputable matters, we go, you know what? I have an opinion, but I, I don't have to share that with everybody. It would be transformational. You know, where is God prompting you to keep your opinion to yourself? 
I know where he's prompting me. It happens all the time. And I won't start to type something or say something. I feel the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? Do you need to share that with anybody? So here's the bottom line of peacemaker. If we want to be a peacemaker, our motivation is love. More so than being right, more so than showing that we're right, more so than making sure other people aren't doing the wrong thing. We're motivated by love because our goal is reconciliation. Our goal is to build community. My goal is to show you love so that you will see God and so that you will be connected to me and to other people. The goal is reconciliation through community. But the price is sacrifice. You can't have peacemaking without sacrifice. A peacemaker sacrifices their own biases, their own opinions, their own rights for the good of others. And Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers. And then he gives a reward for being a peacemaker and then a consequence of peacemaking. The reward is the second half of the verse that we talked about. Jesus says, happy are peacemakers because they will be called the children of God. What a reward to be called the children of God. It's kind of like being called the child of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. Do you know what happens when you're the child of Sam Walton? You get to buy the Denver Broncos. You get to pay $4.5 billion for the Denver Broncos. And then if you want to, you can build a brand new stadium for the Broncos and make it look exactly like a Walmart with greeters and everything, right? Why? Because you're Sam Walton's son, right? That's nothing compared to being a child of God. See, because if I'm a child of God, I don't have to prove anything to you. I don't have to prove I'm right. I don't have to prove I'm successful. I don't have to prove anything because my entire identity comes from the fact that I'm a child of God. And if I'm a child of God, not only do I have nothing to prove, I have nothing to lose. Like your opinion of me, I I don't want to offend you, but I also am not going to live according to what you think because I have nothing to lose because no matter what anyone says, anyone thinks, I'm still a child of God. So Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers because they will be called the children of God. But then he goes on. He's not done. He has one more statement because there's a consequence. If we really live out this peacemaking, like if we actually didn't just hear what Jesus said, but we did what Jesus said and we really walked out of here and said, you know what? I will be a peacemaker. Jesus goes on in verse 10 and says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's where it's connected. Peacemakers will be persecuted. And how do we know this? Because the ultimate peacemaker was Jesus. And they killed him for it. The world cannot accept peacemakers. And so if we are peacemakers, our friends might not understand. Our tribe might not understand why we're not attacking other people. Why we're not standing up for what they believe to be right. But we are caring more about reconciliation. We're caring more about love. We're caring more about doing what Jesus called us to do. Jesus was a peacemaker, and it cost him his life. But ultimately, because of that, that's why I have life. You see, there, in the end, is compensation for persecution. And Jesus said, you will be persecuted, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the day, when we follow what Jesus says, when, we're, when we mourn, when we grieve, when we're peacemakers, when we're persecuted, 
we get to go home. We get the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's a lot like five-year-old T-ball. We all get to play. We all get a chance. We all get to go home. And at the end, we get to do it with our friends. And that's what Jesus calls us into. The bottom line of these beatitudes is that Jesus says we're happy when we're poor, when we're mourn, when we're meek, when we're hungry, when we're merciful, when we're pure, when we're peacemakers and persecuted. Does that sound right? Like we're happy with those things? That doesn't sound right at all. It's why? Because our world is upside down. And Jesus is saying, let me turn the world right side up. And the bottom line, if I were going to sum up all of what Jesus said in these eight statements, is happier those who live life upside down because they win in the end. You see, for some of you, this is very poignant for you today because you would not maybe describe life right now as happy. You may be going through really tough circumstances. You may have someone in your life or yourself that has a diagnosis that's really, really tough. There may be a relationship that's really, really rocky. Jesus never said, if you follow me, you won't have that stuff. Jesus said, if you follow me, in spite of all the world throws at you, you can be happy because we know that when life is the hardest, when life seems the worst, is when God draws near. We know that from Psalm 34, 18, and we'll finish with this. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus' invitation to us today is not that we'll always be right, not that we'll always win the argument, not that our side will always win. Jesus' offer to us today is when we're persecuted, when we mourn, when we grieve, when life comes at us, he will be near to us and we can experience what he truly calls happiness. Can I pray with you today? Jesus, these words are so hard for us to understand. This is not what our eyes see. This is not what our culture tells us. But Lord, we have faith today that this is the truth, that it is in the tough times, it is in the dark times, it is in the difficult times, that if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. It is in those moments that we truly can experience being blessed that by the definition you give, that we can be happy. Lord, I pray today for people who are walking through some stuff today. There are some here that may be mourning a loss. They may be um, dealing with grief. They may be dealing with fear. Lord, you know what's going on. You are with them. I pray that in this moment, in this service, that they will experience your power and your presence, that they will experience peace, that they will experience comfort, and that we will experience joy. And Lord, we just hand the next few minutes to you and know and pray that you will show up and draw near. And we ask it in your name. Amen.